how you're gonna get free this time Falling into a blue sky mind Came to me in that song, my friend I would, I would say, um, I just wanna go back again. sometimes I get emotional with this stuff. Um, everybody needs a chance. Um, everyone needs to be heard. And if we could really take time out to listen, um, take time out to ask the right questions, um, people will see your heart. People will see that you care. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Shri Ponya's One Breath Podcast. This one is special. I have the opportunity to sit down with Shri Ponya's new CEO, John Charles. John grew up in the mean streets of East Palo Alto, California in the 90s. One of the most dangerous cities in our country. John had the opportunity to go to high school across in Mountain View and had the great fortune of meeting a high school coach that saw his talent as a quarterback. John went on to become an All-American high school quarterback and then played for Portland State as an All-American and then went on to the Atlanta Falcons. And yet life had not reached its pinnacle for him because the next step was a time where he found himself homeless and learning the ways of humility and then learning the ways of empowering yourself his heart, his mind, his incredible positive attitude is such a gift to many, certainly a gift to all of us who work with him and serve with him in Sriponia. John has a heart for youth, and he has an incredible blank canvas and an incredible opportunity to fully express the power and the beauty that he is. So welcome, John Charles. JC, it's taken just a little bit for you and I to be able to sit down in these chairs and have this conversation. I, I want to introduce everyone to uh, John Charles. Uh, John began working with Sriponia uh, as a board member, and he is stepping into the role and the work of being our CEO. Yeah. And uh, so, from your perspective, how is that going for you? Oh man, it's uh, it's time. It's yeah. time. Um, this didn't just happen overnight, right? Uh, it was something that we've discussed before, but I just feel that it's always been in me. Um, to lead, um, you know, and, and try to help young men and women um, to strive for their better selves. And so being with Sriponia, being a part of the family, and uh, what it stands for is 
um, what I've always stood for, you know, in my life. And so this is the perfect marriage. Yeah, it's been good. Uh, you you used the, the word lead. Yeah. And I've had the opportunity uh, several times to be down at Warm Springs. We did a camp for the youth yeah. down in Warm Springs over 20 Fun. weeks. Fun time. And these young people yeah. showed up and, you know, I had a chance to witness and observe your leadership and, you know, who you are in that setting is profound. Yeah. yeah. So how did you, you know, you've got quite a background as an athlete. Yes. So I want to get there eventually, but yeah. I want to talk about what had you lean toward like leading youth camps and agility, you know, sports agility, um, football camps? How, how did you go from your past as an athlete to that? Yeah, good question. So I, um, when I got finished with my football career, um, I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do in life. And so I started working at banks, you know, seeing if I can work with people's money. I wanted to work uh, title, right, uh, real estate, um, anything that I could get a paycheck. And the reason why I did that is because I wanted to see what I could take away, what I didn't want to do in life. And so if I could do it at a young age and go do all of those things, work at a bank, work in title, work in insurance, you know, try to see uh, what wasn't going to work, then I could check those off and then narrow it down to something that I loved. And then I figured out that I uh, love working with kids, right? Um, and I did that, but it was in a jail setting, right? Restitution setting where they had to pay off restitution for a crime that they might have committed. Um, and that didn't work. I, I, it wasn't fulfilling enough. And so I ended up moving to working at a prison for kids, and it was called McLaren Youth Corrections. And so these kids had you know, sentences from a couple of months to, to life. And so I felt that I could speak into those kids because they weren't going anywhere for a while. And so that was some, somewhat rewarding, um, but I sustained an injury while working there during a cell extraction, which we can go into a little bit later. Uh, but once I uh, got injured through that cell extraction, uh, it forced me to stay at home. And when I was home, you know, looking at the ceiling, trying to figure out what I wanted to do in life, uh, it just kept coming back to working with kids. And so finally I said, you know what, Lord, I'm not going to move until you do. And so it was working with kids, football setting in Vancouver, Washington, do it for free, right? And so once I established that, then it was, okay, how much, when do I start? And what is the logo going to look like? What is the business structure going to look like? And from that point, um, it took another level. Um, it just took off. And so uh, that was in 2010 that that happened. So just it just blossomed to kids being in the NFL now. Yeah. I, as you were sharing, a question came up regarding um, what, what in your life had you, had you think and confident that you would be able to speak to kids in prison? You know, that, that I mean, the tendency yeah. for those kids to want to listen to somebody from the outside yeah. pretty pretty remote that you're going to have any impact but you know I do know a little bit about your story yeah. so what what was it that had you have the confidence that you'd be able to speak yeah. to those young people yeah. and 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 have them 
pay attention. So, so I grew up in East Palo Alto, California, and that's the north, northern California, the Bay Area, and it was known as uh, hell on earth, a block away from heaven, and heaven is Palo Alto. That's Stanford, million dollar homes. East Palo Alto, no sidewalks, the ghetto, right? Drug infested, police corruption. And so me coming from East Palo Alto, um, you know, as being black, um, you know, already looked at as, 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 as three-fifths of a human, and that's the way they treated us, um, I checked all the boxes. I had a father who died of AIDS, shooting up heroin, mom who was a career thief, stepfather who abused my mom physically, and then was a woman abuser, right, um, womanizer. And uh, I went through, um, I was sexually abused, right? I committed crime myself. I was around gangs, um, barely had anything to eat, went to foster care, right? Was told that I wasn't good enough, day in and day out. Um, I checked all the boxes. And so for me to come through that, come through that fire, there was no kid out there that was going to tell me that they couldn't do it. No kid out there that was going to say that. And so once I got the opportunity to speak into kids' lives and hear their story, that was the biggest thing is I wanted to listen. Because if I could listen and figure out where they came from, then I'll know where they're going. And that's what a lot of people, adults, don't do today is they won't listen to the kid. They'll just go in and give their opinion and their assessment without even knowing anything about that kid. And so for me, I put my listening skills on. You know, I have degrees in psychology, so I used that therapeutic listening uh, really, really well. And once I figured out what that kid needed, then we went down that avenue to get him some help and her some help. And so, um, yeah, I checked all the boxes, came from hell, right? And I don't want to go back to that. And so I was able to, to use sports as an avenue to get out of that area, to get out of that way of thinking, um, and for me, I believe that success is dictated around how well you bounce back from the negative things because we're all going to experience them. We're all going to have storms. And if we could just stand still when that storm passes, then we can look up and figure out which direction we were walking in and then continue to walk in that positive direction. This week's episode is brought to you by The Beauty Way. The Beauty Way is a nine-week online course designed to help you discover the healer within. What if you already are all that you seek? In this 24-7 world of go, 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 there's endless profit in making you believe that you aren't enough and whole, just as you are. That's why the Shreponia Collective developed our latest offering, the Beauty Way course in group meetings. The aim is to empower the voice of your own innate wisdom, the wisdom within. This course calls upon the healing principles of ancient traditions and modern practices from around the world. These include somatic experiencing, loving community, Sufi mysticism, bhakti yoga, and more. If you're looking to explore these concepts alongside other seekers on the spiritual path, the next session of The Beauty Way begins October 10th. Visit becomingaheart.org to learn more. That's becomingaheart.org. I'll have it for you in the episode notes on your app, too. 
Now back to our discussion with the CEO of Shreeponia, John Charles. How do you how do you keep your heart open with kids that are are repeating the behaviors and you're working with them yeah. and they're yeah. you know they <laughs> I you know I I've had some experience in working with uh, some of the staff up at Union Gospel Mission. And one of the struggles for them was continuing to keep their heart open and not become jaded and, you know, uh, the feeling of hopelessness and what's the use. How, how have you, because you do, your, your heart is so wide open. I mean, it, you, it lights up in your eyes. And so the youth you're working with are seeing that. They're having that experience. How have you been able to do that? Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing is I've shown grace to everything. Um, and not only is it grace, but um, I had to figure out what I wanted to do again. And I've always told people, figure out what your passion is in life. Figure out what you want to do in life and do that for free. Right. And if you do that for free and, and, and you have the ability to do it for free, you won't look at the clock because it's your passion. And so if, if that's how it is and that's what it is, if, if that's what you're looking for, and so for me, sports was it. That was my passion. I never looked down at my wrist. I never looked down for a clock. I never asked anyone tell me what time it is because it was my passion. And so the kids, the parents, everyone could see that this guy loves what he's doing. And so then I figured out later how to, how to get paid. But at first, you know, I was picking jobs that were paying me 10000 a month. I was pay, uh, looking for title companies that were paying me thousands of dollars, right? Nearly six-figure incomes. But it wasn't my passion. I couldn't stand it. I would look down at my wrist, look for the clock, look at my watch, look at my phone to see what time it was because I wanted to get out of there. And, if, and, and that's how I operated. Trust me, the customers, the employers, the supervisors could see that on my face that I didn't like it, that I didn't want to be there. And so once I did that check mark, that box, you know, like, hey, what do I love doing that I could do it for free and do it all day long? It was football. It was sports. It was agility. It was working with kids out on the field somewhere and helping them to sharpen their skills. And uh, once, once I did that, the sky was the limit. Have you, ever, have you ever looked back or gotten discouraged with, uh, with providing that kind of leadership from the standpoint of, I just, I can't make a living at it. Sure. And then how did you overcome that? How sure. Is, how have you been able to do that? Sure. Because, you know, when you step into, we don't have a written guarantee with the universe yeah. that as we step into following our heart, yeah. that we're going to be met with millions of dollars. Yeah. 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 So how have you walked through yeah. knowing what your like yeah. what your purpose is. Yeah, yeah. Good question, man. Good question. And then and then Good. go through the discouragement of but damn, I yeah. I can't I can't make enough yeah. money. Yeah. And then found your way through to be able to continue to stay engaged yeah. with the young people. Great question. Um me growing up, I didn't have everything, right? I thought we were rich, but we didn't know. And when I can take a slice of cheese and and fold it in multiple little squares to make it last, or I can eat croutons, right? Because we didn't have any food. We had nothing. 
And so if that was the bottom of the barrel, right, I learned those survival skills. And so as I matured and grew up and started to see that if I can put in the work and figure out what my passion is, right, that, that it's going to win. Because I tried it the other way. I tried, again, working at banks, working for um, multi-level marketing companies that were paying thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars out. And I was still broke. I was still without because I didn't really believe in it. And so the only thing that I had left was to figure out what I wanted to do that I could get the enjoyment out of it. So it's not just about the kid and the parent or what I would call the customer, the client. It's about me. I have to put me first. I have to have fun because then if I'm having fun and that passion comes out and they can see it exuding through my skin, man, I don't need cologne. I, I, I breathe success. I am success. And so they you could just smell me, man. I'm, 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 I'm cologne, right? And so for me to go through that and think that way, it, it trickled down and it affected everybody else around me that they could see that that was my passion and that it wasn't about the money. There are some kids that'll come in that didn't have money, that don't have money. And I could see that. And so I wouldn't charge them the same, right? I grew up like that. And if the person that was training me, mentoring me back when I was 9, 10, 11, 12, could see, gosh, he doesn't have monies for me, Palo Alto. I'll just take him in and scholarship him, right? I had to do the same thing for these kids now. And so and then there are some kids and some parents that do have the means, you know, but I have a price point that it's not gouging and it's not taking. And so I, I think it's this, you know, Bentley is one of the best cars out there, but they don't have commercials, right? Everything's referral based. And so that's how I operate the way I train these kids. It's all referral based and these parents basically speak and, and do it all for me. Yeah, we had the opportunity last week to come down to one of your sessions in Prineville yeah. or come up. Uh, to one of your sessions yeah. in Primeville, yeah. and you know it was amazing uh, to see the impact, to watch you work with these young men uh, on their football skills. Mm -hmm. And however, prior to getting into the athletic part of this uh, of your session with these guys, mm -hmm. you spent talking spent time talking to them about their lives, yeah. about the things that can get in the way of their success as athletes. And um, as we as we sp spent time with you there, it was pretty clear that they were paying attention. Yeah. I I mentioned that because I'm curious, who were those people in your life at that age that were able to reach your heart and mind and and mentor you in a fashion that you didn't follow your dad, you didn't follow in the steps of of your mom. Um, but you found another way. Who are, are there a couple of people that that yeah. come to mind that, oh, my God, had it not been for. Yeah. And it's really weird. It's uh, so even though my stepfather was an abuser, right, um, to my mom and womanizer, um, he was the person that had multiple jobs. He drove school buses. He was the DJ at a party. He was the referee at a game, umpire at softball. And so everywhere he went, I went, even though he was living that double life, right? De demon at home, but out in the public, everyone loved him. And so everywhere he went, I was the passenger in the car. 
And uh, when he drove school buses, I was sitting on the side and he had the football teams in the back. I was sitting up front. He was that guy. And so he had that voice that I was terrified of. And so if he said, jump, how high, right? If he said, move, I moved. If he said, run, I ran. And so he was something, someone that I looked up to, right? And, fig- and said, okay, well, if he's telling me to play sports and telling me to do it at this level, then I need to do that. So he was one. My grandmother was one. She was the only woman that I trusted um, because she was disabled. And so I was able to spend a lot of time with her on the weekends. Uh, and then third uh, was my high school coach, Dan Navarro. Uh, he was just this phenomenal guy that took a risk because, again, East Palo Alto, hell, if you were white or any other color than black and you came into that neighborhood, um, you almost died. I mean, it was that's how it was. It was that corrupt. And so he took a risk and coming to pick me up and drop me off, pick me up, drop me off for years. And then finally, um, uh, John Pay. Uh, he was a quarterback at Stanford at the time, and so... If I left East Palo Alto, Stanford was about a mile away. So I'd go right up university, go watch the practice. You know, I was 9, 10, 11, 12, looking through the fence, and I'd watch these guys, you know, him throw the ball around. And I was like, I think I want to be like that, right? And he was someone that I could touch and ask questions. And, you know, he didn't share much, but just him being out there and doing something that I enjoyed doing, and that was being a quarterback, being a leader, you know, telling guys what to do to try to win. You know, I, he checked all of those boxes. And so it was those four or five people um, that stood out for me that helped me to get where I am today. Yeah, because I, th- I think in high school, uh, you your coach was from a school outside of East Palo Alto. That's right, yeah. And so when you mentioned he would come in to pick you up. Yeah. 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 It, it's crazy, man. I'll tell you what. Being in East Palo Alto and, and, and the way everything worked, if you put E in front of Palo Alto, you weren't getting pizzas delivered. You weren't um, getting your mail delivered, right? If you took the E off, then everything worked. Everything happened uh, because it was that dangerous there. And so uh, to see some of my friends get killed through drugs, violence, gangs, and then to see some of my friends, to say, uh, the office friends go to prison, for life because they were some of the ones doing the killings. You know, I lost both. I lost two friends, like, at one time, right? And that, and that you know, I've lost close to 100 friends like that. Um, and so going through that, my mom, you know, she made the decision to get me out of there and said, you're going to go stay in the next town, a couple of towns over, and it's called Mountain View. You're going to sleep on my friend's couch, right? And you're going to go to school Monday through Friday and then come home on the weekends. Well, that was my role as an as a eighth grader going into ninth grade. And, you know, I didn't trust anyone. I wouldn't let anyone get close to me because I had gone to four different middle schools in East Palo Alto. That's a 2.5-mile radius. I went to four different middle schools. So every time I got pulled from one, I, I didn't, you know, I couldn't keep friends. I wouldn't trust it. And so for me to jump now and go to a school outside the area and the school's predominantly white, 99% white, and I'm the only black, you know, I felt different. I was different. I stood out. And so I developed this other character while being there, and that was to be a class clown, make people laugh, because I didn't want them to sit long enough to ask me questions. Because if they did and they figured out I had a, a slang or an accent, then they'd figure out I was from East Palo Alto. And then I'd get kicked out of school. So I became this class clown. I got C's, D's, and F's, primarily D's and F's in class. 
right? But I could always throw this football. And so one day during lunchtime, the football coach was standing outside of his classroom eating, I remember to this day, eating a bag of vegetables, you know, the carrots, celery. And he's looking and his ball is flying across the field. And so he asked me if I wanted to play football. And that's how it started. And when he asked me, I was like, I guess, sure, right? And I never played a lick of uh, underclassmen football like JV. It was all varsity. And so, when, again, when this guy started, you know, where do you live? When he figured out that I lived in East Palo Alto, he didn't go tell administration. He was like, okay, this is life or death. I will help you. And he drove a bright green bug right, that stood out in the daylight, and so he would come and pick me up, and there were two ways to get into East Palo Alto, man, it was University and Willow Road, and so he would always come down University, and that was like drug central, right, but I was in the car with him, so that saved his life, but he figured out, you know, I need to go the other way, and this guy, I'm telling you, he was shaking, terrified, holding the steering wheel, and I said, if you see a person stand in front of your car, don't stop because they're pretty much going to hide, you know, carjack you and take your life. And so he did that for three or four years of my life. And, uh, yeah, that, yeah, I, I owe it all to him too. Yeah. That, that sense of gratitude, uh, that sense of, I owe this man. Yeah. But it comes from just a deep place of yeah. gratitude, yeah. doesn't it? Yes, yes, Dan Navarro, man, Dan and Barbara, and Damn. I I still talk to these guys to this day, and they're in North Carolina now, but you know, I called him two weeks ago and cried like a baby because every time I talk to him, he is this jovial guy. You know, he loves talking about the old stories, and and, and I I broke down and was like, man, you, you've really saved my life because if it wasn't for you, you know, I was guaranteed to be a gang member. I was guaranteed to sell. I was guaranteed to go commit crime. Um, because that's what I came from. That's what I knew, right? And uh, that's how I knew how to make money. I was really good at that. And so for him to pull me out of that, give me an environment that I could thrive as an athlete was huge. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, things didn't go rosy. Things didn't go as smooth as I wanted it because at that time, being a black quarterback, being left-handed, you know, and being six feet wasn't the norm. The quarterback, the leader of the team, had to be blonde-haired, blue-eyed, six-foot-three, right? Jesus. He had to be that. Only in America does Jesus look like that. <laughs> right? So that, that's the depiction of a leader to everyone. And so back then, you know, in 1989, um, when it came time for colleges to recruit me and really talk to me about paying me to an education for scholarship like Stanford, Cal, USC, Oregon, they had to get in their car. They had to get a hotel. They had to physically pull out a map, paper map, and come and see me. It's not like it is today where you can just tweet YouTube and pull up instant information, right? It, they had to physically come and see me. And when they arrived to town and talked to my coach, they're looking again at, for the blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy, right? My name didn't look like I was black. John Charles doesn't say that's a black man. Right. So when they would come into town, they'd look and see me and then turn around and leave. And I didn't know that. And so, again, remember that freshman year that I talked about, that class clown, that person that didn't want people to know it was from East Palo Alto? That counted against me because it's an accumulative grade point average. So they use all four years. And so if I'm at a senior and I'm getting a 3.2, 
I'm thinking, okay, I'm good to go. Grades are great. You know, I didn't, I didn't cut class. I showed up to everything. I did really well in football. I think Oregon, you know, Oregon Ducks, I'm ready. I think I deserved a scholarship. Well, guess what they went back to that freshman year and said, wait, 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 hold up. You're getting C's and D's and F's here. You don't have enough. So you have to go to another school, junior college, in order to complete a degree, and then we will consider you. And that's when the light bulb went off for me, that I had to go to Foothill Junior College, the next town over, Los Altos, and play football again. And so uh, once I did that, then the sky was the limit. But again, being black, being a quarterback, being left-handed, still uh, had its limitations. And so I succeeded. I was an All-American at Foothill Junior College. I'm ready to roll up my sleeves and go to USC. And they came into town and saw that, again, I was black, left-handed, five foot 11, six feet, and they left. And so I ended up going to Portland State University. And the question that I asked those guys is, how's your, how's your uh, academic program, number one? And from there, then can I get to the NFL from here? And when they told me, oh, yeah, you know, we have the Portland Trailblazers, that's the, the only thing you compete with, then I, I showed up and balled out and got to the Atlanta Falcons. Wow. Yeah. That's a hell of a ride, yeah. JC. Yeah. Yeah. Hell of a yeah. ride. Yeah, it is. And for you to, you know, to keep your focus yes. and your attention, yeah. because I'm sure there were times where in all of the, uh, in all of your accomplishments, yeah. there were probably times that discouragement could set in and, you know, in, in that what's the use become part of or have the opportunity to settle in. How have you, because you're one of the most positive, authentically, it's this not fake stuff, man. You walk in the world and, uh, and you see light no matter how much illumination there is. You see light and you speak it and you live it. How have you been able to develop that? Yeah. Particularly with the experience you had growing up. Yeah. It, it, it was that. It was my upbringing. It was the times when we didn't have the heat on. It was the time when the lights didn't cut on. Right. Uh, it was the times that I had to make up my beds because in my room I had two twin beds. Right. And the, the, the uh, covers were NFL teams. And so it was all 31 NFL or 32 NFL teams, you know, Green Bay, San Francisco Raiders. And every time I made my bed, I look, I was, I was looking at that. And I was like, one of these days I'm gonna make it. So if I'm making my bed up 365 days in a year, right, guess how many times I'm saying that. And I was speaking that into existence at nine, 10, 11, not knowing where it was going. And so for me to be in the dungeon, be in hell, hear the abuse, see the abuse, see my friends die, see people go to prison, my dad was in jail, right, to see all of that, and then my role models, I can't trust them, I stayed in my room, I didn't come out, I stayed in there, and that's what I could control, I was OCD, right, all the trophies that I got, I put them in my room, and it became a museum for me, and that was the only positive thing that uh, kept me ticking, and so for me to get, um, uh, when I had those days where I'm like, man, I want to quit, you know, I had to, my why was bigger than anything. And it was like, John, remember your mom looking over the bed at all the bills, crying? Remember when she tried to take her life? Remember when the stepfather beat her down and the police showed up and 
uh, asked if they wanted to press charges because back then it was different. You know, if, if, if a man abused a woman or women abused a man, uh, they can ask you the question. They, it wasn't automatic jail. And if you said, no, I won't press charges, then they literally turned and walked away while you had ice on your eye. And that's what I had to watch. So me seeing that and figuring out how to go to school the next day as a third grader, fourth grader, fifth grader, I had bruises on me because I was the one trying to protect my mom from getting hit by the next blow. But if the bruises that were seen on me by that teacher, you know, is how did you get that? I made up lies. Oh, man, I hurt myself riding a bike, right? And kept a smile on my face while doing it in order to try to stay in education, right? But if I told the truth, then I knew I was going to go to foster care. And I went to foster care twice in my life, and I was sexually abused at one of them at six years old. So I knew what the outcome would be if I lied, if I told it, or if I told the truth, right? There was a lot of things at, at play here, but at such a young age, you know, I figured it out to be positive. Yeah. Yeah. That, that takes something and have it, have that positivity be for real. Yeah. You know, and, and not something that just becomes another part of your winning formula, but it's really authentic. And, and, think that's what is one of the qualities that I appreciate so much about who you are. It's not just something you um, have to walk around remembering to be sure. positive. It's sure. just, you know, like you were talking, just smell it on me. Yeah. You can smell yeah, it on man. me. It's yeah. the same, yeah. not only is success part of that, but but what you bring as a gift yeah. to the people you're around is like the real deal. Thank you, and I appreciate that. I know, again, being young, I, I, I had to practice that role of telling myself, you know, everything's going to be all right. That was out of my control. The only thing that, I, again, I can control was what was in my room, right? And uh, can I go sneak food into my room and, and then take my time and eat it because I knew we didn't have much. But when it really, really, really hit home, was in between my senior year in college football and trying to go into the NFL. And um, what took place was um, I was at the end of my senior year and uh, I really wanted to play in this game called the East-West Shrine game. And it was in Palo Alto, right? Heaven, right? East Palo Alto, Palo Alto. It was the next town over at Stanford University. They called it the East-West Shrine Game. And so I, I always wanted to play in this game. Well, the NFL uh, directors uh, caught wind that I wanted to play and that I was good enough to play. And so one night in Los Angeles, night before a game, uh, the director of the New York Jets came and uh, we sat on these shoeshine chairs, right? No one's around us and we're just sitting on the chairs. The guy's not even there that does the shoe shining. It's just him and I, right, the, the, the director. And he said, you know, John, I understand you want to play in this East-West Shrine game. And uh, if you do really well tomorrow, then we'll consider it. If you don't, then we have another kid up in, in uh, University of Washington named Mark Brunel that we will consider. Not that anybody's ever heard of Mark. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so I'm competing with that. And so as soon as we left, shook hands, first thing I did is went back up to my bedroom, you know, hotel room. And I had two queen beds, right? One bed had my clothes laying on it, and the other bed I'm going to sleep in. Well, the first thing I did is call my mom, and it's like, Mom, guess what? We made it. I just talked to the NFL scout. He said, if I do really well, then I'm going to play an East-West Shrine game. That's almost a free pass to the NFL. I'm in. 
right? We're going to do this. I'm going to get your house. I'm going to get you everything you ever wanted, right? And I'm thinking I want to get her away from the abuser, right? So I'm going to take care of her, right? That's what we do as kids, as sons, right? Want to take care of our mamas. And so as soon as I hung up the phone, then I called my real mom, and it was my sister, my 11-year-old sister, Robin, right? Or, or she's 11 years older than me, and her name was Robin. And so as soon as I called her, said, sis, guess what? Girl, I'm going to get you that car you wanted. We almost gave her the same spiel, right? But this time she wanted a car, she wanted a house, she wanted to travel, she wanted to come to all the games. So I promised her all of that. And as soon as I hung up that phone, then I paced my room and started, you know, laying out my socks, making sure everything was neat, you know, again, that OCD in me. And as soon as I did that, first thing that I said was, man, I can't get hurt. I can't get hurt. I'm almost there. I can't get hurt. And I never reversed that. So the next night, right, we're playing, and it's a night game, and I'm crying. And the coaches are looking at me like, John, what's wrong with you? You all right? And I was like, yeah, I'm just thinking about my, my dad because my father, my real father, biological father, had just died of AIDS, shooting up the heroin, right? And I had wanted him to see this and be a part of it, but it was never going to happen. So I'm looking up at the sky, and I'm crying, and these coaches are concerned and wondering why, and, you know, it's an emotional game. Well, you know, play a first half of football at 299 yards. That's a lot of yards for a half of football. And so, again, I'm focused. I'm locked in. And walk into the locker room, and I'm sitting there in my, in my, <laughs> my locker, right, and I had a hooded coat. Well, I flipped it around and just draped it over my head as if I had just lost someone to death or I was at a funeral. That's the look I had. And I'm holding my left wrist. This is my throwing hand. Nothing's wrong. There's nothing wrong. It just felt like a funny bone, like you hit your funny bone and that twing you get, right? It felt like that in my left wrist. But again, nothing was wrong. There was no reason for it to feel that way. And so guys are concerned and they're asking me what's wrong. And I'm like, guys, I'm good. Leave me alone. I'm good. Just we're winning. Good. We're great. Right. But my wrist kept feeling that way. So we go out after halftime, get on the field, we stretch, we warm up. And then the whistle blows and then I throw a pass and immediately I get pushed and fall to the ground to brace my head from hitting the ground, the impact, the concussion. And I look at my wrist and it's broken dislocated, torn, right? And I walk off this field, and that was it. That's when my life changed. And so it took five months for me to recover with a cast on, having to deal with that. And during the NFL Combine, there's a process where all the best players in the country go to test and show that they're worthy of making millions of dollars and playing for these NFL teams. Well, I got to go. So I was with Drew Bledsoe, Mark Brunel, right? That was my roommate, uh, Jay Fiedler, Michael Strahan, Jerome Bettis. It was the class of 93. And I was one of the top quarterbacks in that class, but I had a cast on my left wrist that I couldn't show. And so um, got the cast off eventually, ended up going to the Atlanta Falcons, free agent, because I was a liability with my left wrist, still atrophied, unable to bend. They're unsure if I'm the same, same John Charles that I was before. And so I ended up spending that preseason trying to get my wrist right. I played in the games, right, and was doing well. Well, they said, you know, we got to send you home and let you heal. So when I went home, you know, I, 
all this money. I'm 21, 22 years old, thousands of dollars. I've seen the checks, right? Deion Sanders, $200,000 checks for a week. Um, Chris Miller, $150,000 check for the week. These guys are all making millions, and we can see the pay stubs because that's how they paid us. They put it in the pay stub, envelope still open. It's laying on the table. Guys' egos are out there, right? And, and I could peek and look and see how much these guys made. So I knew. So as soon as I got home, right, back to Portland with my thousands, not millions, but my thousands of dollars, right, what I thought was a lot of money, and it is, it is to some, so I, I'll take that back. Um, I was asked to join Equinox International by a friend that I trusted. And when they showed me that Kenny Loggins was the spokesperson, we could save whales, save animals, right? Uh, water filtration, save the environment. And you can make thousands of dollars doing this? As a 22-year-old kid, $50,000? I didn't blink. I didn't think that it was a Ponzi scheme because I had just seen what we were making with the Falcons. So it didn't question. Well, it turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. And if people looked at it today and saw the article that I saw, they can look up 2020, Barbara Walters. It was a Ponzi scheme. And that's how I learned about it, was watching it on TV. And so all that hundreds of thousands that I had, that I had given into it, that I invested, was gone. So I ended up homeless. So I was living with four other guys, Rex, uh, Elliot West, Mark Ledoux, it was four, three other guys. We lived in a house with no electricity, eating, taking showers with dish soap, right, with whatever water we had, eating cereal with water. Uh, all my clothes are sitting in the back of my Jeep Cherokee. And I'm still signing autographs because, again, I had just gotten back from the Falcons, so people recognized me as a local hero from Portland State. Right. Man. And I'm homeless, eating rice with soy sauce, nothing, counting pennies. Uh, for gas. And that's what I went through in 1995, 96. Yeah. And that's when I said, okay, I need to change the way I think. Right. And I was almost forced into changing and being positive because thoughts were things. And everything that was happening, I was manifesting it. I was bringing it. I was the failure. Uh, I was the person that, you know, almost get success and, 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 and won't, won't allow the success to happen because it's going to get taken away. I always thought that way. And so from here on out, you know, it was like, nope, thoughts are things. I'm positive. There's that window. There's that four-second window that I can think a negative, but I can change it. I could change it within four or five seconds and go, nope, I don't, I'm not going to get hurt. Everything's good. I'm great. Everything's positive. And keep walking. Yeah. yeah. That the gift you are in the world is going to be able to impact so many people. Soon to be, yeah, absolutely.
Absolutely. And thank you, man. I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, I believe in Traponia and everything that we do and how we exist um, from your beautiful bride or future to be future wife soon to be, be soon yeah, to be absolutely. Jennifer. Um, you know, and it's uh, yeah, it's a powerful thing. And, you know, from from coming from that negativity and trying to be positive, um, it takes a lot. You know, it takes a lot and it takes effort. Um, and I feel that, you know, the sky's the limit once you can get into that pattern of thinking. Now, don't get me wrong, with my father dying of AIDS, shooting up heroin, he graduated to that. And what I mean by that is he was the tester, one of the testers for the community, uh, where, and all I just remember is this guy with a red Corvette, he was the distributor, he was the guy that was dealing, would always show up and, and, and have my, my father test the stuff. So if it was marijuana, John, his name is John Charles Sr., same thing. John, try that out, right? Tell me if it's good. And, and I could remember seeing the reactions from him. No, nah, that's bad. Don't do that, right? I didn't know what that meant. That meant, no, nah, that's bad. Don't sell that, right? He would show up with cocaine, heroin, everything, crack. And my father would try it out. Oh, yeah, that, ooh, that's some good stuff. So he was getting the stuff for free to test it. Whether it was good or bad, he was still getting high off of it. And so when he got to that point where it was heroin, and he started taking his mom, my grandmother, taking her diabetic needles to shoot up, right? I was watching this. And again, my grandmother, she's disabled. So she walks with that walker. Well, he respected her enough to be close enough to get hit by her cane. Because he could have avoided getting hit by the cane, but when she realized she didn't have any more diabetic needles to, to take her insulin, that, that cane came up and he was getting hit in the shoulders, head, wherever he could get hit. At that time, I didn't understand what he was doing because it was hidden. But then when he started to shoot up in his feet and he couldn't put shoes on and, and he was walking around, he never told me that he had AIDS. He ended up going to prison for stealing to support the, the drug habit. But when he came back home out of prison, he looked healthy, he was exercising, and all of a sudden he started losing lots of weight and hitchhiking and back on drugs again. And had I known back then what I know now, when he was hitchhiking, he was going to pick up his, his AIDS meds, the medication. And I never knew that. And I would literally drive right by him. I'd drive my car and look and see him right out the windshield. And him hitchhiking, we like eye to eye, and I would drive right by him. Because I thought he was still in the hustling mode trying to use drugs. And so I was really, really emotional back then. And this is, again, 18, 19, 18 years old that I had no idea. And so... One evening, my grandmother suffered an injury because, again, disabled, and she was in a medic van where they strap you in and they drive you to your appointments. Well, they forgot to strap her in. And so she fell in the van, right, broke some, some, some ribs, ended up in the hospital. And uh, I went to visit her. And for weeks, I had been looking for my father but couldn't find him. And guess where he was? At that hospital two rooms down, coughing, sitting Indian style in his bed coughing. And so when I realized he was in the hospital coughing, I asked the doctors, what's going on? What happened? What is this? And they wouldn't tell me. They just said it's pneumonia, but they didn't tell me it was HIV. And so two days later, grandmother dies. Four or five days later, he dies. And then that's when they revealed to me 
that he had died of AIDS. And so now I'm trying to figure out what AIDS is. What was it? Could I hug him? Did I hug him? I remember him kissing me on my forehead. Could I have contracted it that way? We had no idea. Just like today's COVID, how do you get it, right? AIDS, like how, do, how does it get, how do you contract it, right? And so I asked my mom, you know, at that time, what happened? And she, you know, again, I couldn't trust her. But she said, yeah, your dad didn't want you to know what, he, what had happened. And I was like, man, that's messed up. But I handled it like a champ and looked at him on that deathbed and said, I will never go down that road. I will never do that. I will go out from here and go speak into people's lives, into kids' lives, adults' lives, because I've seen it all. I've seen death. I've seen people lie. I've seen people <laughs> use the drugs. I've seen them get high. I've seen people shoot at our house, right? I've seen it all. So now I'm going to go out and share this with the world if I can. Yeah. yeah. True stories. Well, you've got the opportunity to begin to do that. Yeah. I mean, you've been doing it all along. Yeah. And it just continues. Yes. And hopefully yeah. the platform there's a bigger platform, you know, there's an opportunity. Uh, and, and I'll just, I'm going to go back and reference that 20 week camp yes. that you did yes. and you led down at the tribes of warm Springs for the young, uh, native kids there and the hope that's in their eyes now. And, uh, and the gift that, that you've given them and that we get to go back and give it again. Yes right absolutely that's the beauty absolutely. of the type of work we do yeah. it just isn't a one and done man no. it no. it's not a one and done and, and again it, it's our passion yeah and if it's our passion someone said man you you work a lot of jobs that's not work to me i don't see any of this as work or a job because it's my passion and so that's what we're seeing here at stake and same thing for you and jennifer and everyone that else that's within Shraponia. As board members, Jarek, Haley, right? Everyone that, that, that's in this is working what their passion is. You love podcasts. This isn't work for you, uh, right? No. Haley is somatics. That's not work for her. Jennifer loves doing the back-end stuff and making this go. That's not work for her. Me going out and speaking to the public about drugs and AIDS awareness and um, empowering them you know, to do other things and practice other skills, whether it's in athletics or whatever it is, entrepreneurship uh, with barbecue sauce that I have, right? This isn't work for me. None of it is. This is, this is it. Yeah. So let's, let's, I'd like to give a plug for John John's barbecue sauce. Oh, and I'll put you. it in the show notes <laughs> right. as well and a link to how, yeah. where people you can bet. find it you and bet. all that stuff. But yeah. um, because it really is a unique, you, you uh you are an entrepreneur yeah that's you know right. and you are developing this barbecue sauce that's right. and here in central oregon how many how many local stores uh close to it's 19 stores and people can order over online yes. as well yep they so. can order online john john's barbecue sauce and the uh, punchline is sauce sauce is so good even the meat ask, can ask for it by name <laughs> <laughs> that's um, good, yeah and the backstory with that is um me growing up in Again, East Palo Alto and going to um, Mountain View High School, that's Silicon Valley, right? That's uh, Invention Central. So Apple's there, um, you know, Facebook, everything's there. Um, Facebook's behind my, mom, behind my mom's house, by the way. 
uh, because Mark Zuckerberg realized that in order, in order for him to set up shop, he had to find some land that was really inexpensive. And so guess what area was inexpensive? East Palo Alto, because it was crime-ridden and known to be that. So everything was cheap there, and that's why he moved there. Um, but going back to the high school stuff, um, if anyone, if you guys all know what Guitar Hero is, the video game, right? Um, my center, Charles Wong, in high school, uh, created that. And so he and his brother, you know, they end up going to Cal Berkeley, but they created the demo and then it's Guitar Hero, what you know, now. And so um, for me, I wanted to make money when I was asleep, you know, and that was my motto, man. I'm going to figure out how to make money when I'm sleeping. And so I had this, always had this mind of creativity. And uh, when COVID hit, you know, I took out um, a barbecue sauce or something that I thought was a really good barbecue sauce. And ended up figuring out um, how to make it taste really good and, and then distribute it. And so that's what you know today is John John's barbecue sauce um, that's in stores. And so I wanna get it to a Costco level, right? Upscale it to that, but still be able to help kids in this capacity and what we're doing. Yeah, because part of you know what we've discussed or what you're considering is having internships yes. and being able to introduce not only not only using athletics to invite kids into a you know into a uh, a productive life a joyful life yeah. not only athletics but entrep- be, being able to become an entrepreneur and understand business and the way things work and the integrity that's required in order to be successful that's right and uh, and, and again for my life uh, and where I've come from and where I'm going I've taken every part of it, every facet of it, every corner of it, and, and I'm applying it now. Um, I'm a treatment aide at Rimrock Trails. Uh, that's a residential treatment facility for teens, 12 to 17-year-olds. Um, but because I fractured my back, um, it's really slowed me down as far as um, me even training the kids. I can't stand up. I can't do what, what I would normally do with those kids as far as demonstrating. Uh, when I do barbecue sauce, I have people help uh, manufacturing it, bottling it, uh, because I used to do it all on my own. And so now I have to have help there. Um, I look at my career and all the things that I've done as like this thousand piece puzzle where someone threw it in front of me and I had a choice to say, you know what, I can't do that. Or you know what, I can. And when I looked at that puzzle, what's the first thing that we do when we get it? We look for the edges because those are the easiest parts to assemble. And then we start to take these colors that are, you know, the reds and the blues and the black, right? And we start to separate them. Well, um, I would get to these parts of that puzzle where it's all the same color and they're all black and you're not sure where they go, right? You just know that there's these holes in your puzzle that you can't, like, do right away. It's going to take some time to put those pieces in. And so where I'm going with this is, you know, uh, in life, you're going to have holes, in your life, you're going to have dark areas that you don't think will apply, but it will later. And so you'll go to that pile and figure out, you know, there's that black piece and you start to figure out how to turn it. And then sometimes you guessed, right? And sometimes you didn't, but eventually the puzzle is going to get put together. And so in my life, all of the things that I've gone through from being homeless, from losing all my money, from sex abuse, from watching dad, you know, due to drug and alcohol, watching my other father beat my mom. Those are things that I was embarrassed about. 
and I wouldn't speak on it. But then when I'm looking at that 10-year-old who's looking up at me, right, like wanting to be like me as a sports athlete, um, I realized I had to share it. I had to say it and not be embarrassed by it, that it was going to help somebody else who was hiding, who was in denial, who was uh, ashamed, right, of what they're going through. And the moment that I was able to do that freely and say, hey, guys, in front of 2,000 people, my father died of AIDS shooting heroin, right, um, there was others that came out and said, man, my mom's going through the same thing, or my sister. Um, and so we were able to talk about that and then recover. And so uh, with all of these things that I've done in my life, I don't boast or I don't brag. I have confidence. I have to have confidence because who else is going to do it for me? I have to have confidence in myself that I could do this. Um, so we've created internship programs right, for treatment. We've created internship programs for John John's Barbecue Sauce. Same thing for training and ambassadorship where girls and boys can come in, plug in, and roll up their sleeves and then ask, how can I help? Because I know that I'm going to help. So if, they're, if they have that same passion and have that same heart of wanting to help, we're going to take care of them. Yeah, I'd like to use, like bring in an example yeah. that I'm aware of. Yeah. And that is... Uh, a young man that that showed up every Sunday during the camps in Warm Springs, Jordan, and you coach you coached him as a kid. You coached him as a kid, and he's how old now? Jordan you know, is twenty four. Yeah, and and, years old. and you've had this relationship with this young man yeah. since he was a little guy, right? And here he is. You know, he found that mentorship, and now he's stepping into a life of contribution. So it gets, we get to what we begin here, gets to be passed on. Passed down, our ambassadors. That's it. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and I played college football with Jordan's father, Ben, Ben House, And so it just happened to be that Jordan ended up in Prineville, staying at his grandparents, and we crossed paths. And then, uh, you know, with Sriponia, and we were just getting out to Warm Springs. And that, was, that wasn't easy because uh, they've been hurt as a community. And, and to trust us, to trust Sriponia coming in and saying they're going to do 20 weeks from February to June in camps. So no, we got to see it first, right? And so we showed up, and Jordan was all about it. That spoke to his wheelhouse because that's his passion. And so he showed up every, every morning faithfully on Sundays, got in that car with me. We had the game plan. By the time we showed up to Warm Springs, you saw it exude. He's got the same cologne I got. He does. Right? He's wearing he the does, same cologne man. I have. Confident. Fact, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. And joy. Yeah. And, you know, just his heart yeah. beats for those young, yes. young kids, yeah. man. Yeah. You can just see yeah. it. He never looked at the watch. Right. Right? And he just shows up faithfully. And so... Uh, yeah, Jordan, as part of being the internship, and I call it the ambassador, because he wants to to continue to do what he's doing with Sriponia, wants to be on the board. He wants to help the next kid in line who has the same passion, right? He knows what to look for. He knows what to look for in individuals. And so to see what Sriponia is building, uh, we're going out and trying to impact, um, you know, culturally diverse um, communities and people um, is huge. And to see kids like Jordan come through 
right? Uh, who's uh, comes from a multi-racial uh, uh, family, right? His father's black, mom is white. He's gone through struggles, and so for for him to speak on it, right, um, is huge. It's huge, and it's a testament to what we're building here with Straponia. Yeah. Yeah. So it would probably be good for us to land, like we're approaching the tarmac, getting yeah. ready to land the plane, yeah. right, yeah. and and bring this home for this time. I. I'm hoping we can do this yeah. on a regular basis, yes. JC. Would love it. I, I think we, I think we can, you know, speak to a lot of issues yeah. that people are dealing with yeah. from life experience. Yeah. We have a lot you to know? talk about. Yeah, yeah, we do. Is there anything you'd like to, like, bring as a conclusion yeah. to our conversation today? Yeah, I would. I would say. Um, Sometimes I get emotional with this stuff. Um, everybody needs a chance. Um, everyone needs to be heard. And if we could really take time out to listen, um, take time out to ask the right questions, um, people will see your heart. People will see that you care. And for what we're building with Shreponia, you know, it wasn't something that started over, just happened overnight. You and Jen came up with, with an idea, it was creative in the name, Shreponia. That's, that's beautiful healing, is, in, right? In Sanskrit, right? And Sanskrit. And, and uh, for you guys to create that, and then walk by my booth on a, on a hot summer day when I was with the father's group and saw me selling barbecue sauce. When you approached me, again, I came from East Palo Alto. I don't trust a lot of people. I'm a hard nut to crack. And you guys came with a smile, told me what you were doing, and it fed into what I love doing. But again, I'm a hard nut to crack because I've heard it before. Equinox. This is the best, save the well, save the animals. I ended up homeless. So when you brought your idea and brought your nonprofit and the beliefs in what you were doing to me, I had to, I had, I had to make sure. And once I rolled my sleeves up and really delved into what Shreponia was all about, you guys checked all the boxes for what I love doing. And that's, help, that's to help use preventative maintenance, empowering people who have substance abuse, mental health issues, you're checking all the boxes. And so now I get to be CEO of this and team up with people who are walking in the same direction as me and that's trying to help anybody and everybody with a heartbeat? Oh, this is heaven for me. This is, this is it. And if someone said, man, how can you do it? You're doing barbecue sauce. You're working at Rimrock Trails, right? You're helping kids. Right on the side, me helping football players might not be what I was used to do before my back injury, but me trying to help and talking to kids and then doing this, this isn't work for me. I could do this all day. I don't even wear a watch. Just to show you, I don't wear a watch because everything that I'm doing lines up with the stars and it's my passion. And that's to work with kids. I don't have to go look at a script. I don't have to have something remind me. I could tell the story of my father. So it's all about my mentality, man. It's all about my mentality. 
And I'll leave it with this. I learned this from Ray Lewis. And he said, man, he, uh, he tells a story about um, how did the lion become the king of the jungle? And everybody raised their hand. Some people didn't know. Some people scratched their head. And when he said, you know, we know the lion um, isn't big, the biggest in the jungle because that's the elephant. We know he's not the smartest because that's the hyenas. And we know he's not the fastest because those are the cheetahs. So if we know that he's not the biggest, the fastest, or the smartest, how did the lion get that title? And it's because it's his mentality. When he sees the elephant, what is he thinking? Lunch. When the elephant, as big as it is, looking down at this lion, what is the elephant thinking? Run. So we got hyenas around this lion, laughing, literally laughing, because that's what they do, trying to eat him. He roars a couple of times and they run, right? And it's all because of his mentality and, and, and the approach. And so everything that I do today, my, I mean, again, I don't wear, <laughs> I exude it, right? I exude it. I'm attacking it with the loving, kind heart where I want to help so many people before my heart stops beating, right? I want to help so many people and being with Shaponia and having this platform, being CEO on a team with all of you guys is it. So I'm, I'm in heaven right now. So thank you for everything that you've created. Thank Bro you. Brother, that is a mic drop. Yeah. Right there, man. <laughs> <laughs> so mentality. So yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. Yeah, yeah we'll thank do, you. We'll do this again, Jason. Yes. Thank you, brother. You bet. So you good, bet. man. You bet. Thank you. I trust that John Charles' story, the power of his heart, the wisdom of his words encouraged you and touched you the way they did me. Stay tuned for more as Sri Ponya's One Breath podcast bring you the heart the soul, the courage, and the lives of people here in Central Oregon. And then, for those of you who live in Central Oregon, stay tuned for our next live event, a screening of the movie, the documentary, the incredible story of creative people who are recovering from addiction. The title of the film is Creative High. We hope to be bringing the producer and director of this film on the podcast very, very soon. But the date of our screening at the Tin Pan Theater will be September 19th. Stay tuned. If you want to be added to our mail mailing list, make sure that you contact us. Subscribe to the episode, email us at greg at shreeponya, S-R-I-P-O-N-Y-A dot com. And until next week, take care. God bless.